0: Previously on The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on trial. We heard opening statements from the prosecution and defense, both sides setting the stage for the course of this trial. It's the old adage, you know, first impressions are everything. This week, we hear from one of the whistleblowers who originally set Elizabeth's downfall in motion. It really started to eat me up inside and that's what led me to file the complaint. And the intimidation tactics she says Theranos employed to try to secure her silence. They had showed up to my work and it it
1: scared my own co-workers. They were curious, like, why has this guy just been
0: sitting outside of our lab? Plus, a mysterious man named Hanson
2: causes quite the stir. When we found out who he was, we just, we couldn't believe it.
0: audio this is the dropout elizabeth holmes on trial episode 5 mystery men as the ancient legal maxim famously goes justice delayed is justice denied whoever originally made the pronouncement which dates back to the 17th century clearly hadn't anticipated the rise of covid Barely three weeks into the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, a juror, number nine, alerted the court he might have been exposed. That meant the proceedings had to be postponed until he came back with two negative tests, a foreboding sign of things to come. In the downtime, reporters began comparing notes. As it turned out, many of us had met a strange figure who started lingering outside the courthouse during jury selection. He was a balding man with rectangular framed glasses, wearing a blue quilted Patagonia coat with khaki pants and a black surgical mask. He was friendly, striking up conversations with a lot of reporters as we waited in line to go inside, including Good Morning America booker
2: Miles Cohen. I was thinking to myself, everybody else has kind of told me their publication, their name. So I, I went up to him and I said, what's your name? He said, "Hansen." What's yours? And so I told him Miles. And he said, Miles, that's a cool name. I thought, you know, that's that's a nice thing to say, right? You too. Uh, I've I've really never met a Hanson before. (laughs) And, and, you know, I guess in hindsight, I still have it.
0: ABC field producer Dia Athen also met the mystery man.
3: So the first day of jury selection, I was the first one to arrive at the courthouse. It was early. It was like 5 a.m., I went up to him. I asked him, I said, hi, are you a journalist? Are you a reporter? And he said, no. And I said, oh, okay. so what brings you here? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and just said that he was interested in the case. I actually thought it was a little like, wow, okay, you're getting up this early to come stand online to get in to watch jury selection. I was kind of more surprised that a member of the public was interested in doing that.
0: Hansen told reporters he fixed up old cars. When asked if he had a connection to Elizabeth, he told NPR's Bobby Allen, do I know her? Does anyone know her? What does it even mean to know someone
2: these days? I remember him telling us, Elizabeth and I are the only two people here not getting paid.
0: Once in the courtroom, the peculiar figure appeared again, this time in a gray suit. Miles Cohen was shocked by what he saw.
2: I look up from my seat and in the front row of the court, you know, right behind the defense table, is this man with the same hairline, the same glasses. And I realized that, no way, that is (laughs) Hanson. And he's wearing a really nice suit. And I I couldn't believe it.
0: The guy, calling himself Hanson, sat down right next
2: to Elizabeth's mom, I realized that it was Billy Evans' dad, Bill Evans, the hotelier.
0: Yup. Hansen was none other than Bill Evans, the father of Elizabeth's partner, Billy.
2: I was in the elevator at the time when a reporter asked him, are you a mole? And, you know, he fired right back, I I have a mole or something.
3: So when I found out about, you know, his real identity... I went up to him and I said, well, look at you. And I could tell under his mask he was smiling. And he even said to me, he said, I'm smiling under my mask. So I know he kind of felt good about pulling off this little coup.
0: What did this powerful hotel magnate, a prominent figure in San Diego and the grandfather to Elizabeth's newborn son, possibly hope to accomplish from such a bizarre stunt?
4: Honestly, it's hard for me to get into his mind as to what he was thinking doing that. It just strikes me as being bizarre and not helpful. Kathy Fleming
0: is a federal defense attorney and former U.S. prosecutor.
4: I went from being in the government to being someone who now fights the government every chance I get. If
0: you're Elizabeth's attorney and you find out he did that, what do you say?
4: I have a very stern talk with him and explain that I think it's very detrimental to Elizabeth, and that the best way they can help is to behave appropriately. And then I ask that the father never come near the courthouse again.
0: And it's possible that's exactly the advice he got. The next time Elizabeth showed up at court, on Tuesday, September 14th, Bill Evans, or Hanson, was nowhere to be seen. Instead, Elizabeth walked in holding her mother's hand. Back inside the courtroom, Judge Davila continued to run an orderly ship. Something litigator Jay Edelson, the founder and CEO of Edelson PC, who the New York Times has called Silicon Valley's most hated plaintiff's lawyer, says Davila is known for. Edelson's been following the trial each step of the way and says he's keenly interested in its outcome.
5: The defendants we generally go up against are the Facebooks of the world, Twitter, Apple. Uh, all of them. And as a result, we are intimately familiar with the culture of Silicon Valley, both the incredible benefits and also just how scary it is and how it has led to so many abuses. And, you know, Theranos specifically is such a window into the underbelly of Silicon Valley.
0: He says Judge Davila is known in the Valley as being a fair and
5: good-natured jurist something that could impact the outcome of this trial. I've been before Judge Zavala a lot. He's, he's got a really interesting combination of being a very smart, thoughtful, decisive judge. And we've seen that already. When there are objections made, he rules right away. He's had to deal with some very tricky issues regarding jury members.
0: Tricky issues beyond just COVID. Recall, for example, juror number seven. The 19-year-old who said she wouldn't be paid by her employer during jury duty. Judge Davila ultimately excused her for financial hardship. She was replaced with an alternate, Juror number 79, a white man who appears to be in his late 50s or early 60s. Then came another curveball. Juror number 12 disclosed she'd briefly worked at KPMG, Theranos' former accounting firm a possible conflict of interest, even though she never personally worked on the Theranos account. Judge Davila delicately put the matter before the attorneys. Could they keep juror 12? Neither side objected. Edelson says that bedside manner, the connection and trust Judge Davila is already building with the jurors will have an impact.
5: What happens in these types of trials when you're going on for 13 weeks and the jurors aren't even allowed to speak to each other, and they're not allowed to speak to the outside world about the case, they start bonding with the judge. He's just a great guy and he's, he's not arrogant, he's not an elitist. I think they're really going to start looking to him. And I already see that the lawyers are starting to reflect back his personality. As for those 12 jurors, it's now
0: eight men and four women and hopefully there won't be too many more hiccups. The government star witness this week was Erica Chung. You may remember Erica from the first season of The Dropout. She was one of the original Theranos whistleblowers, and you could feel the weight of her testimony in the courtroom, according to ABC field producer Dia Athen.
3: When Erica took the stand, she was a breath of fresh air. You could tell the jury was engaged, paying attention. It appeared like they were listening more closely. Her stories were interesting.
0: Erica started working at Theranos fresh out of UC Berkeley, where she double majored in molecular and cellular biology and linguistics. Recordings aren't allowed in the courtroom, so everything you're about to hear comes from our conversation with Erica for the first season of The Dropout but much of it echoes what she said on the stand. Erica told the court she was starstruck when she first met Elizabeth Holmes. I was probably the
1: first person to really like drink the Kool-Aid. And I had read all the articles uh, about Elizabeth Holmes and was completely infatuated about this amazing female
0: entrepreneur who had dropped out of Stanford and started her own company. Elizabeth had just been named one of the Women of the Year by Glamour magazine. I
2: I am so incredibly humbled and so honored to be with this incredible group of women.
0: Introduced by Academy Award-winning actor Jared Leto.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the only person I know who makes me feel like a lazy bastard, Elizabeth Holmes.
0: But once Erica started the job, she said she quickly became disillusioned by what she saw inside of Theranos. Erica spoke knowingly and animatedly to the court about quality control failures. They were par for the course, she said, and Theranos would frequently cherry pick data, deleting any two data points that would not hit the metrics we needed. This is what she told us would happen when they'd run a quality control test. It kept failing. I kept running it
1: over and over and over, and how it was handled totally blew me away. And so essentially how it got resolved is, They took out data points and they said, oh, well, this is like the best two out of six, the way that we kind of average things. So
0: you're, you're saying essentially that you were cherry picking. Exactly. The information. Right. In order to make the information make sense. Right. When assessing the effectiveness of the blood testing machines, she testified, you would have the same luck flipping a coin as to whether your results were right or wrong. Their quality controls were failing At one point, what seemed almost every day. Prosecutor John Bostick also included a damning statistic as he questioned Erica. He told jurors in March 2014, 25.6% of Theranos quality control assay tests failed. So about one in four tests was failing. Yes, Erica testified, that was pretty standard for Theranos. On the other hand, it was very uncommon for those tests to fail on non Theranos devices. Erica also discussed some of the personal sacrifices she says she and other workers made. Employees, including herself, sometimes donated their own blood to Theranos in exchange for cash to conduct tests for research studies. When Theranos ran tests on her blood, Erica told the court they came back showing she had a vitamin D deficiency something that never showed up on traditional tests. Erica even described to the court how employees would sleep in their cars because it took so long to calibrate the machines when they routinely failed. They would literally work around the clock, she said. Jurors seemed to be hanging on every word of her testimony, but perhaps the most crucial piece came when Erica described what she says happened when she dared to speak up She told the court, former president and COO, Sunny Belwani, berated and ridiculed her. Here she is again in our interview. The reception that I got was basically, you
1: need to sit down and keep your mouth shut, and you don't know what you're talking about, and you need to do the job that I
0: hired you for, which is process patient samples. But it went beyond that. When Erica decided to quit her job, seeing the culture as antithetical to her values, she said Theranos had her followed. She said she was terrified. They had showed
1: up to my work and had someone sit outside my work at my new job. And it it scared my own co-workers. They were curious, like, why has this guy just been sitting outside of our our lab um, for such a long time that they had waited to walk me to my car because I was the last one working that night?
0: It was the same story Erica told us many years ago. As she left the office, Erica said a man walked out of an SUV and handed her an intimidating letter from Theranos attorney and board member, David Boyes, threatening a lawsuit. Dear
1: Ms. Chung, this firm represents Theranos Inc. We have reason to believe that you have disclosed certain of the company's trade secrets and other confidential information without authorization.
0: That letter was terrifying to a then 23-year-old Erica
1: I was super paranoid and had a burner phone and was absolutely scared and terrified. Probably had like $5,000 in my bank account and was thinking, how am I going to pay for a lawyer to defend myself against this?
0: But the lawsuit wasn't even her biggest concern, as Erica told us. It was very bizarre
1: because the letter that they had addressed was a, an address no one knew I was living at. It was a temporary home, so it freaked me out. Like, are they following me? How did they figure out where I lived? Because even my own mother had not known this address. about
0: Erica consulted a lawyer who advised her to report what she'd witnessed to regulators. So she wrote her own letter, this one nearly 1,800 words long, to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, She detailed what she says she experienced inside of Theranos. The major stability, precision, and accuracy problems. It would prove devastating.
2: Hey, this is Brad Milkey. I host ABC's daily news podcast, Start Here. The Dropout will be back in a minute. But first...
4: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth.
2: I want to invite you to start your day with us. Every morning on Start Here, we dive deep into the biggest news stories with some of the best journalists in the world. It's smart, it's relevant, and maybe most importantly for you, it's quick. Again, that's Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News, available wherever you listen.
0: Listening to Erica talk about this terrifying ordeal, the jurors seemed riveted. This young woman, fresh out of school, said she'd seen something wrong. And despite the potential personal costs, she found the courage to do the right thing and spoke up. One juror even took notes, something rare so far during this trial. Jay Edelson says it was a critical moment for the government's argument.
5: This idea that Elizabeth Holmes was this, you know, innocent little flower, but when you get into the details and how harshly... They treated anybody who spoke up. This is one of the really bad facts for Holmes' defense team.
0: Which may be why the defense fought so hard to keep the story about surveillance, the letter from David Boyes, out of Erica's testimony. Their objections were overruled.
5: I really think it ends the debate about whether Elizabeth Holmes really was innocent. And the more that, that we get into how vindictive she and Theranos were it really undercuts any argument that we need to feel sympathy for Holmes That was the stuff just when when I was getting into this case that really got me upset. And that's what I look for when I'm I'm thinking about how to present a case to a jury. What's the stuff where where I look and I go, I'm I'm mad here. I don't get mad in the same way when I hear that multimillionaire investors lost some money. That, you know, they shouldn't be defrauded. But when I feel that boil the blood moment, that's the stuff I want to really focus on with the jury.
0: And this probably isn't the last we'll hear of it because Erica's testimony didn't just raise questions about Elizabeth. It also raised questions about another witness the government may eventually call, David Boys The man who wrote Erica that threatening letter, one of the leading trial attorneys of his time, He represented Al Gore in the presidential recount of 2000. He later helped pioneer the legalization of gay marriage. But he's also known as an intimidating corporate litigator. And he was the longtime attorney of Harvey Weinstein. Here's Jay Adelson again.
5: I know David Boyce well. Ten years ago, he was considered one of the top five lawyers in the country. Uh, He had as much respect as anybody. And I don't know what what has happened to him, but he has turned into this ultimate fixer. He's kind of turned himself from one of the great attorneys into a souped up, more intelligent version of Michael Cohen.
0: The government has also produced a paper trail to back up Erica's claims. They entered into evidence two Theranos-issued checks made out to private investigators, totaling a little over $150,000. Theranos' own internal vendor spreadsheet calls the expense E. Chung and Tyler Schultz project, as in Erica Chung and Tyler Schultz, the other well-known whistleblower in this case who also said he was followed.
5: These are ordinary people who were speaking up they were right about this. And David Boys has an incredible amount of power. It is not something that is good for the profession. I think that's a total mess mess for him, and it's a total mess for Elizabeth Holmes as well.
0: And he thinks it'll be important for the court to hear how David Boys answers for himself.
5: I cannot wait for David Boys to testify because I, I want an explanation, and I don't know. He's, he's a very smart lawyer. I don't know how he talks his way out of this one.
0: We're also likely to hear from another former colleague of Boy's, Heather King. King worked with boys before joining Theranos as its in-house counsel. After Theranos dissolved, she went back to his law firm. But just days before opening statements, Boys Schiller-Flexner removed Heather King from its website. She also deleted her LinkedIn profile. After several inquiries, the firm responded, Heather had taken an in-house position which they said she'd considered doing for a long time. Erica Chung finished her testimony after three days on the stand. In cross-examination, the defense focused on the fact she was junior, and they said far removed from Elizabeth. The defense also tried to distance Elizabeth from Erica's claims about the troubled technology inside of Theranos. They said Elizabeth never signed off on the problematic validation reports. Instead, the lab director and Theranos vice president did. It wasn't a confrontational cross-examination. In fact, there were times it even came across as friendly. At one point, Elizabeth's attorney, Lance Wade, told Erica not to sell herself short. In the end, Erica looked exhausted, but it was clear her testimony was impactful.
3: That was just very, very powerful to have this young woman testifying against her former boss and somebody who she really, truly admired and she believed in. And now she's sitting there, one of the people who brought down Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos as a witness testifying against this woman. And that's the thing. Elizabeth, of course, was in the courtroom the
0: whole time Erica testified. Erica seemingly did her best not to make eye contact and to stay focused on the task at hand. But Elizabeth, sitting just a few feet away, kept her eyes on Erica. If the jury was left questioning whether Erica actually was too junior to know what she said she saw inside of Theranos, the government's next witness, Sharika Gangahedkar, was meant to dispel that doubt. Sharika is a former manager of assay systems at Theranos. She was granted full criminal immunity by the government, and unlike Erica, reported directly to Elizabeth Holmes. Sharika was steadfast on the stand, telling the jury she didn't think Theranos' devices were ready to be used for patient samples when they went live inside of Walgreens. Reading from multiple emails, prosecutors presented backup for Sharika's claims. In one from September 2013, the same month as the Walgreens launch, Sharika is informed that over 20 machines have failed. Specifically, 15 had error readings, three seemed to suddenly shut down, and two were hauled away to a separate location. Sharika even sent Elizabeth emails detailing numerous failures with Theranos' devices. But Elizabeth, Sharika said in her testimony, directly pressured staff to make the Walgreens rollout happen anyway. Sharika said Elizabeth told her she'd, quote, promised to deliver to the customers and didn't have much of a choice than to go ahead with the launch. Ms. Holmes said she didn't have much of a choice? Prosecuting attorney Robert Leach asked? Yes, Sharika replied. When prosecutors asked Sharika where this pressure to move forward before Theranos was ready was coming from, she didn't hesitate. From Ms. Holmes, she said. Sharika decided to quit, telling the court she was stressed and unhappy and concerned with the way the launch was going, knowing that there were reliability issues. She printed out the email correspondence and other documents, even though it may have been a violation of a non-disclosure agreement she'd signed. I was scared that things would not go well. And I was also worried that I would be blamed, she testified. The government introduced some other striking pieces of evidence this week, including Theranos' internal financial documents and its 2015 tax return. They gave jurors an idea of where the money was flowing and how much the company struggled financially. Like, for example, in 2015, when Theranos was facing mounting losses, more than $500 million at that point. But at the same time, Elizabeth gave herself a $200,000 raise and was flying around on private jets.
5: They wanted to show at the time that Elizabeth Holmes started kind of this campaign of lies that what was going on in the company And I think that that a lot of it got lost in the weeds. I'd be surprised if that really resonated with the jury. But what did come out, which was very clear, was the company was under severe financial distress. It wasn't making money. It was losing hundreds of millions of dollars. During that time, Elizabeth Holmes was flying on private jets around the country. And I think their point is that created a type of desperation, which explains all the other actions.
0: But Jay Edelson warns prosecutors have to be careful about going too deep with some of these more complex topics.
5: I'm a little bit concerned that, that the prosecutors are kind of falling into this trap, explaining some very hard science and then also explaining some very difficult financial issues. You know, even for me, and I had to read the transcript a couple times to really understand what they were saying. And the idea that a, a lay jury is going to easily be able to assimilate 13 weeks of trial testimony over some very difficult issues is that's going to be the big challenge by the prosecutors, the defense. I mean, so smart, just saying, oh, they're just going to bore you to death.
0: This trial may see hundreds of witnesses and last three months or more. But defense attorney Kathy Fleming thinks it's likely many of the jurors have already made up their mind if the stats play out.
4: The research is pretty good on this. It says about two thirds of the jurors have their minds made up after the opening statements. So they're important parts of the case and you really wanna try to get the jury to understand it right away. So who's been more convincing? I thought the government's opening statement was far more detailed in terms of what precisely they were going to show and, in some instances, who was going to provide that evidence. The government knows exactly what its witnesses are going to say. They've been preparing, they've been meeting with them, and they know basically how the testimony is going to come out.
0: She says the defense wisely took this into account in their opener.
4: I noticed they were very careful. There have been defenses put forward about perhaps claiming abuse with her former boyfriend, former co-defendant who's gonna be going to trial next. But instead of detailing that at all in the opening statements, all the defense said about it is basically watch and listen and you'll see what the relationship was and what kind of influence he had over her. And I don't blame them for doing that until they hear all the evidence and see how it comes out. You don't want to be in a position where you're saying something that's proven untrue right away. The defense has to play some zone-to-zone defense here and see what happens when it comes out. Attorney Jay
0: Edelson still believes the government has the upper hand.
5: I
4: think the prosecutors had the
5: better day when it came to opening arguments. What their opening statement did was it gave a lot of very concrete examples of fraud, which they can deliver on. And I think they're going to deliver over and over and over and over again. They are going to bury Holmes with her own words and evidence over evidence.
0: He believes one of the defense's biggest themes, framing Elizabeth as someone who was just in over her head, is going to be a hard sell with jurors especially given all her public appearances on stages before audiences of thousands.
2: It's such a special thing for me to be here, especially with this group of people.
0: Plus, high-profile news features like this one from CBS This Morning.
2: Let me ask a little bit about you. Do you own a TV? No. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I work all the time. And I'm, I'm basically in the office from the time I wake up and then working until I go to sleep every day.
4: And
0: convincing some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the world to put their money in faith with her, like legendary investor Don Lucas.
4: This young lady comes in and it left Stanford, didn't graduate. She had a company called Theranos.
0: So she came by both of these, the two things that are necessary here, one medicine and the other entrepreneur quite naturally.
5: The defense they're in a very tough position. I mean, I'm mean, i not criticizing the lawyers at all, but they have a number of arguments that they're starting to develop, which I think are fairly inconsistent. This idea that Elizabeth Holmes, who's probably one of the most self-possessed 19 year olds uh, at the time that I've ever seen, I, I have a 19 year old daughter, and she's terrific. But you look at what Elizabeth Holmes was doing, and, and she was selling this enormous vision. Getting former secretaries of state and titans of industry is a crazy thing for a 19-year-old to do. And now one of the main arguments that the defense is making is, oh, she was just a kid. That's not going to end up being supported by the evidence.
0: One thing that could work in the defense's favor is time according to Kathy Fleming.
4: The longer a trial goes, the more it benefits the defense. If you look at some of the famous acquittals that have happened in this country, uh, such as the O.J. Simpson case, or you look at, there's a case called toro that went on for two years and it was all acquittals in an organized crime case. I think the longer it goes, the harder it is for the government to win their case. Uh, it, it, it's just natural. I think to the extent that the jury gets to know her and gets to know the lawyers and like them, it gets a lot harder to convict somebody.
0: The outcome of all this?
4: The statistics are so skewed in favor of the government. When you're trying a case on the defense side, you're you're swimming upstream.
0: And on top of that, she thinks the prosecution was also stronger in openings.
4: I don't want to take a crystal ball out and predict. I, I think that if you did it based just on the openings, I think the government had the edge because they were more detailed. Jay Edelson agrees. The odds are in the prosecution's
5: favor. So if this were not a celebrity trial, I would say this is a slam dunk case. The celebrity aspect of it puts, you know, 15 percent in doubt because anything can happen. And then, frankly, the fact that COVID is happening, I think you got to add another 10 percent that there'll be something weird happening like a mistrial. But. In terms of on the evidence itself, I think that Elizabeth Holmes is in an incredible amount of trouble. And I think then Sonny, when it's his term to be tried, is going to be in a lot of trouble as well.
0: COVID delays, potential mistrials. Back to the old adage we opened with, justice delayed is justice denied. It'll only be a matter of time before you can decide how true that really is. Next week, we'll hear from one of the so-called Therabros, an old friend of Elizabeth's brother, Dan Edlin. Recall Dan was Theranos' senior project manager and one of many people recruited to the company by Christian Holmes.
1: Now, you came to the company because you knew Christian Holmes, who was your fraternity brother at Duke, correct? Correct. You were involved in uh, proposals for the Department of Defense correct what happened with the relationships with the dod did they ever go forward
2: they stopped at at some point because there was no you know realistic path forward
0: tune in next tuesday for that (laughs) elizabeth holmes bill evans Sonny Belwani, and David Boyce did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial, is written and reported by Victoria Thompson, Taylor Dunn, and me. Victoria is the executive producer. Taylor and I are the producers. For ABC Audio, Susie Lewis, producer, and Madeline Wood and Marwa Milwaukee are associate producers. Our field producer is Dia Athen. For ABC's business unit, our associate producer is Victor Ardonez and our production assistant is Lane Wynn. Mixing and scoring is by Susie Liu and Evan Viola. Evan also composed the music for The Dropout. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and Cedric Honstadt. For ABC Audio, Liz Alessi is executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ian Rosenberg, Eric Avram, and Stacia Dushishku.